Hello and welcome to another edition of Pathfinders in Biopharma, the podcast series from RBC Capital Markets. I'm your host, Joe Coletti. In today's episode, we dive into the dynamic and ever-changing world of biotech investing with a special VC roundtable hosted in partnership with Endpoints News. You'll hear RBC's Noel Brown, head of U.S. Biotechnology Investment Banking, speak with three VC guest panelists, Chen Yu, founder and managing partner at TCGX, Matthew Young, managing director at Longitude Capital, and Arsani William, CIO and managing partner at Logos Capital. They'll discuss the exploration of how investors across the biotech ecosystem are navigating market complexity to put dollars to work creatively to manage risks, maximize rewards, and stimulate growth. As they assess the landscape, it becomes clear the sector holds promise from both a fundamental and equity valuation perspective. Now let's dive into the conversation. You know, we enter 2023 with the view that biotech sector, its worst days were behind it. And that this two-year correction that has been historic, right, by in terms of total magnitude and duration, was likely behind us. And what's been fascinating to see is over the course of this year, despite the fact that the market overall has been quite resilient, with the S&P and NASDAQ actually posing positive returns, we've seen this substantial gap between the XVI, or the sector proxy for the index, and the S&P just continued to widen. And it's something we didn't expect, because if you look back in 2021 and 22, there was a lot of speculative access in the sector. The good news, I would say, is that, you know, our ecosystem has this history of experiencing very rapid and substantial reversals. And that can happen in both positive and negative directions. And I'd say for the last couple of years, it's certainly been in a negative direction. But the reality today is that when you take a look and we do analyses on these that we more or less kind of send out to our investor base in terms of just the sector proxy of how expensive or cheap valuations really are in this mid-cap biotech complex, you're looking at equity to cash ratios that are below other prior turbulent troughs. And that includes 2008, 2009, during the financial crisis, and even during the 2001, 2002 uh, tech bubble bursting. And when we look at what happens in subsequent periods, once you sort of hit these troughs, you typically see quite a violent reversal in terms of a valuation upgrade across the entire complex. We're still waiting for that to happen, especially kind of given in, you know, we exist in an environment where risk aversion is clearly the predominant psychology and mentality that exists today. But notwithstanding, if you take a look at sector fundamentals in regards to you know, companies are conserving cash. They are cutting spend on early pipeline programs that two years ago, those decisions would have been much more difficult. They're looking at new and exciting opportunities in order to break new areas of, you know, what we've seen from ESMO, for example, a lot of different novel cancer targets and in other areas, new modalities that they can advance forward into the clinic. And what you're finding is that pharmaceutical companies are beginning to step up, not just as a corporate buyer, but also as a big investor through different collaborations, different supply agreements, and also through different venture capital arms where they're coming in to bolster the sector. So I think that, look, it's been it's been a tough couple of years from an investor perspective. Certainly, I would say from a company perspective, if you're early stage or running preclinical programs. But that being said, uh, the sector from a fundamental standpoint, from an equity valuation standpoint, actually screens, quite frankly, uh, pretty asymmetric to the upside to us, and we're excited to see what 2024 kicks off starting in a few months. 
Interesting. Matt, um, any thoughts? I know we've talked about the macro environment generally. Is it aligned with your expectations as well? Yeah, I'd say largely we're not too surprised with the market we're in now, and I would agree with what Arsani's mentioned here. Really, though, one of the distinct differences of which there are two is just the size of this impact of the liquidity bubble in 2020 and 2021, and the fact that we had almost 400 IPOs in that window out of 2,000 over the 30 sort of preceding years. And so just when you, you think about the quantum of companies that went public, some of which in our minds were uh, early or not ready. A lot of that was that that exuberance that Arsani uh, alluded to on you know, pipelines or platform companies that could really deliver on promise quickly. And I think you know we've uh, seen that that can take some time to bear out and to, to get to data that really definitively proves the success of that platform. So you know, stepping back and looking then at a you know fifty billion dollar funding wall for the sector, and the second big factor, which is uh, what the impact on time value money is from higher interest rates, which I think we haven't seen before, and I think the big question remains: how uh, sustainable or uh, is that a structural change that's likely to last for a longer period of time? And I think what we're trying to do is gird our portfolio companies and factor into the companies we're looking at. The fact that that may be around, and I think we've expected it could last until 2025 in terms of uh, while management teams are, I think, appropriately adapting to that environment and making tougher decisions, it's just a lot to uh, digest to work that out of the system. So I think coupling that with things like the IRA, some of the pressures from the FTC, uh, there are some headwinds there, and I think we expect them to continue. That said, uh, M&A activity has been, you know, kind of about average. Uh, you know, it's always a bit episodic, but that that support from the standpoint of exits is there. I think pharma will continue to be creative about how they support uh, this ecosystem. And ultimately, I think from our point of view, uh, uh, for the right stories, we are seeing you know, good good signs of life and and support. So I think we continue to believe that we can navigate this environment. But uh, we're, I guess, less sanguine that it's going to fundamentally shift right away, that despite some of the lower valuations, just because of this, you know, really large bolus of of activity that happened a couple of years ago. Chen, when you think about this past year, how have these evolving macro conditions influenced your strategies that you've executed on? One of the quirks of our particular fund approach is that we have a, a flexible mandate. Our fund actually has no limitation on private or public. We could be 100% public or 100% private. And part of the rationale for that is, you know, to some degree, like I, I kind of had this thought a couple of years ago, like trying to predict the market cycle is impossible. Like no one knows when it's going to turn. And so instead of spending my time thinking and worrying about whether the next year is going to be good or bad, I just essentially go where the best risk reward is. And so, you know, right now when a market's like this, it's going to be very hard for private opportunities to compete with public ones. The liquidity discount that you have to be paid for effectively in a private deal right now is just immense. Um, if you think about like to the point that I think was made earlier, I mean, from 2017 to 21, we were generating somewhere around 150 companies a year. So you have this backlog. If you think about it, it's like there's been like 18 IPOs in the last two years. Where are the other 500 plus companies going to get money from? <laughs> right. So in effect, we're weaker companies are going to pull down, you know, valuations for all companies. And that backlog in the private market is replicated in the public market, right? Where you had historically like 200 public companies, now you've got 700, right? So I think the good part for investors is actually, it's like, it's great for active management because these are the errors where active management actually beats index by, right? Because a third of the answer just has to go to business. But I think it's going to portend, I mean, like if I go back in time, like 20 years now, 
would say the lessons learned from the early 2000s was early stage is just going to be really, really tough. And the math just doesn't work at 7% interest rates. So, you know, I think for, for many investors, we're going to see like this kind of kind of interesting boom opportunity for late stage investors because we kind of get to pick off the early stage winners, but we don't have to pay a risk premium for it. But then fast forward two years and the reality is the pipeline gets tight, right? Because there hasn't been as much early stage company formation. So the, the system kind of equilibrates. So we're, we're honestly thinking of things now like in more like in a three-year time frame. We're not actually expecting 2024, frankly, to be much better. If you actually look at developed economies over time, the time it takes to go from 5% inflation back down to 2% has taken on average like 10 years. Like this, this actually could, I would say it's not a moment, it might be an era. You take a look, I would say, at every IPO that has been issued since 2020 till today, and the median IPO, if it was a preclinical or phase one launch, is down 70%. 70%. What that tells us is that you know risk aversion, especially appetite for early stage, particularly in crowded markets, whether that be you know things like cell therapies or you know the sixth or seventh in class targeting a you know known cancer target that is already well addressed, I would say, by large players. That stuff is going to be very difficult to invest in, and I would say certainly to finance through kind of follow-on rounds. That being said, it actually creates a delineation in the market between companies that are haves and have-nots, companies that do have stellar kind of mid to late stage data sets, companies that, for example, can access capital markets at low equity valuations like we discussed, where investors do see the asymmetry, like Jen was saying, over a two to three year time horizon. But there's going to be a lot of stuff that was, I would say, kind of born out of the speculative excess of the market over the last few years that doesn't get funded. But that's a healthy thing. I wouldn't say that the market in 2020 and 2021 was a healthy biotech ecosystem. I'd say it was quite diseased. And so to be able, I would say, to cleanse you know, the speculative excess that has happened and move forward in a healthier way to where companies are really paid off the idiosyncratic data sets that they can produce in novel indications to where there isn't competition and they're at the forefront, that's the environment that we want to operate in. I would also say I agree with Chen in the sense that active management is, is absolutely going to thrive during this period. If you're trying to own basically kind of the inverse rates proxy, which is the XBI currently, I don't know if that's going to do you know all that well, because I do think that a concentrated portfolio in mid to late stage companies that absolutely have a value proposition that no one else is addressing and have shown not only proof of concept in a small clinical state study, but certainly in larger data sets to where you can bear out the variability and generalize to what a phase three study will look like, those companies will actually thrive. And what you've seen is the bifurcation, I would say, in the market in regards to companies that are 200 to 500 million market cap that are trading on the public exchange. Those companies have bore the brunt of the downturn. In fact, I think they're averaging two to three times the decline that their larger mid-cap peers are averaging. And so I do think that, you know, we're entering a period of time to where I'm a little bit more optimistic in regards to how markets, especially for the biotech ecosystem, will perform, because I do think that it's been a little bit too much and more of it is now psychology as opposed to fundamentals that are being priced in from a rate perspective and a macro perspective in the sector. But I do think that idiosyncratic picking on the private and the public side, particularly for mid to late stage assets, is going to be the way to go. You know, Matt, where do you think the most exciting opportunities can be found today? And you know, that could be therapeutic areas, specific indications, modalities, geographic region, any thoughts? Importantly, we're always going to be looking for innovation that we believe can deliver products that help patients and not just what's hot today. 
from the market, I guess we're seeing some shifting focus, probably seen in other reports that we're, there's been a broadening uh, a bit away from oncology in particular, less fervor around certain modalities that are, say, very expensive to manufacture, could take a long time to clarify the clinical signal or uh, maybe more nuanced or maybe have smaller market sizes. So, you know, things like precision oncology and IO, which were, you know, quite in vogue are, are maybe less so today. Um, and we'll see a bit harder environment for those. There'll still be investment opportunities there that make sense, but it's it's definitely tougher. And I think this broader interest in terms of different therapeutic areas, I think aligns to, uh, from our perspective, with demographics as well as kind of broader market forces. And uh, we're really excited about areas like uh, immunology and inflammation, cardiometabolic disease, uh, the right types of orphan assets, and certainly have some of that across our portfolio and are, are continuing to look and make new investments there as well. Uh, also in neurodegeneration, where we, we think there's some also exciting opportunity there with uh, some of these different categories, uh, either entering or already in the public discourse, being able to be things that can attract broader capital into the space as well. Um, on the earlier side, where I think just uh, you know touching on something I, we may talk about more in this discussion as well, uh, Chen's perspective there, we agree with. I think you can run a lot of risk in the early side of development, and, and you know, a lot of people can enter later without paying a huge premium for that. But there is still opportunity there, done selectively, I think, to make excellent returns and, and an investment need that, that needs to happen. A couple of areas we're you know, doing a lot of work around are things like epigenetic reprogramming, which has the potential to unlock you know, a lot of novel biology and, and target space and things like radiopharmaceuticals, where there's real promise and I think rapid and cost-effective drug development as that modality matures. So we, we we think there are some really interesting pockets of, of opportunity, if I was to say therapeutic area and modality-wise uh, evaluated that way. We continue to see a lot of great science in many cases at more reasonable prices out of Europe. We've seen a little bit, a lot of great science, but a little bit less uh, uh I guess, coming to grips with the current market realities and some of the, the valuations and some of the things we've seen out of Asia. So we've probably done a little bit less there of late, but uh, in general, those would be the areas where we're seeing the most opportunity today. How about Arsani Chen? Have you guys uh, identified any areas that we should also be mindful of? I'd say cancer has been a really tough space to invest in over the last couple of years. And I think we've all kind of seen cancer valuations in both the private and the public market really come down substantially. But there's a lot of really exciting new targets that are coming out. I think we've looked very closely at the T-cell by specific engagers in regards to what they can do on overall survival. And I've been fascinated by some of those data sets. Uh, synthetic lethality, I would say, uh, to where novel targets are basically you know, coming to fruition that are actually showing you know, early data sets that are more than just intriguing alone. Uh, you know, Amgen and, and Marathi, for example, with the PureMT5 data and the potential to do combinations with those data sets across a wide variety of solid tumors, I would say holds great promise for the field. Um, in addition to things in prostate cancer that have emerged in kind of new novel targets that are coming out, all of those things that we take a look at actually get us quite excited on the sector. In terms of other modalities and domains, you know, I'd say the reclassification of what cell therapy can do outside kind of targeting a CD19 cancer has been an area of unique interest for us, especially I would say some of the early data that's coming out in regards to what cell therapy can actually do for autoimmune disease. And then when we think of very large target classes, you know, both, I would say, in terms of active players, but also kind of new incoming players, you know, we think of markets, you know, like what can replicate in the future what the TNFs have done over the course of the last 20 years. 
And that really is the FCRN class in which, you know, we both have active investments and are kind of looking, I would say, at companies that are that are more or less kind of coming up uh, and producing kind of new data sets of their own. So a lot of exciting stuff around and, and always, I would say, have to be dynamic and really have to just follow the data in the end. At, at a certain point, though, I mean, is what all three of you are doing threatened by GLP-1s, right? I mean, essentially, those are going to cure every ailment that we have, and there won't be anything else worth investing in because we won't have disease, right? Well, you know, the reality is we're, we're probably a peak hype train on GLP-1s. Let's all admit that. Um, at the same time, look, we've actually known for a long time that if you lose weight, everything else actually gets better. Um, I think the real innovation, actually, if you think about it, was not that it would work and have all these benefits. It's actually how would these drugs get approved? Because if you've been around long enough, you know that all these obesity drugs died um, in trying to get to approval because they were trying to get approval as obesity drugs. And it turned out the Trojan horse was diabetes. <laughs> and then you kind of come across as once you essentially establish as a treatment for what we, at least the FDA and to some degree, the medical community considered a quote unquote serious disease. And I think now with the recent data where GLP-1s have shown cardiovascular benefit. Um, so we, we're actually quite heavily invested in the space. And it's, it's funny, this market seems to be one where maybe the reemergence of like the size of the TAM become like makes a difference again. Whereas I think if you go back in time, it became one of these things where what is tractable for a small biotech company? And that's why Rare and Orphan really kind of boomed, target oncology, right? All those those kind of boomed in that with that mindset. And now if it's a TAM-driven mindset, right? Cardiovascular metabolic all became big because we all know that the most common causes of death are, you know, cardiovascular and metabolic driven. So in a weird way, I think that that's where I think we're spending a little more time on, on some of the larger TAM opportunities. I mean, the one other area I would say that's kind of interesting to think about is like specialty pharma, which no one even pays attention to anymore. <laughs> I mean, so you can, you don't have to make technology bets in specialty pharma. You can just make commercial bets now, take zero technical risk. And you have all these specialty pharma companies that are trading at like insanely low valuation. So that's, I think that's another little interesting niche for folks to think about. Yeah, that's interesting because that isn't something I hear every day, uh, to be honest. You know why? Because if you actually look at most of our public hedge fund peers, a lot of them are in their mid-30s, and they grew up in an era where it was like all targeted oncology. And special pharma was just, you know, something that if you were, you had to be kind of investing in the early 2000s when, you know, if you go back in time, again, that has kind of worth a to go back 20 years now. How did venture firms survive? We were doing specialty pharma because it was lower risk, right? And so you're grinding out binaries in the early 2000s. It's a little bit like that now in some way. You kind of think about it, right? Like people yeah. who grew up in the in their 30s never experienced a grind out market. It was just up and to the right. So you just took speculative risk. Now you're like, okay, well, my risk profile is coming down. I think it'll be interesting to see, especially if farmer, you know, has a benefit from that. But we'll see. I agree with everything Chen said. And I'd say you are going to get a regression back to the mean. I mean, we, we've been in deals, for example, with Chen to where... We, you do have to restructure and reprice companies. And for example, to the ability that sort of everyone on this call can be fluid between private and public markets, you're not going to take a look at evaluation territory or new domain, and basically just draw a one-size-fits-all policy. It's going to be very specific by class, by category, by company, by stage of development, et cetera. Th there's two things that actually kind of, from when Jim was speaking, sort of piqued my interest. One is that I, I think he's, he's absolutely right. The glip one story is the AI theme of healthcare for this year. And if you take a look at the value destruction that it's caused, not just for biotech companies overall, but just the fear mongering that has happened across medical device and med tools and med tech in terms of dialysis companies and bariatric surgery companies and tools companies that have lateral exposure to the space, it is very clear that we are pricing in a very big TAM. But that's also the opportunity 
is that if you don't believe that you can necessarily compete with Eli Lilly or Nova Nordisk in developing the next generation subcutaneous flip one combo that is just as safe and efficacious, you need to think where the puck is going, not where it currently is. And so some of the investments that you know Chen had mentioned before, you can think about territories and how do we develop oral incretins that basically can accomplish 90% of the efficacy and safety, but more or less offer a various, you know, more or less or more frequent and infrequent, excuse me, or convenient dosing in terms of administration. So that that entire arena is certainly going to evolve and will certainly actually become a major player, I would say, in terms of the innovation space. And it's actually quite exciting because you think back to 2014, 2015, it's almost like the hepatitis C cycle is we've unlocked something, even if the science and the data and the rudimentary research was there for years, we've unlocked something that really has triggered, I would say, a pretty open market on to invest in things that will increasingly become more popular. And we'll put the biotech ecosystem and the biopharma ecosystem again at the forefront of consciousness uh, for most investors. The, the, the spec pharma stuff is really interesting because in my mind, I would bifurcate spec pharma versus commercial stories. But in terms of commercial stories, I agree. You are able to buy really first and best in class commercial stories that are actually beating earnings and numbers and continuing to grow at a rapid pace that exceeds past launches in those areas for what you would buy, kind of a phase two or phase one company. Again, when you put that entire picture together, what does that do that bifurcates the world into two realities? One is there are mid and late stage companies that will be able to raise capital because they're only two, three, four years away from approval, potential launch, a revenue stream. And those are the risk averse assets that pharma will take a look at for potential BD, but also the assets that investors will look at because they don't want a lot of volatility should these things enter the capital markets through an IPO. It is the early stage stuff, especially if you are in an area that is incredibly crowded without a data set over the next two to three years that you will be able to differentiate or at least bring in investors that can see what the value proposition is versus the 20 other stories that they have seen. Those are the companies that will struggle. Yeah. And on this, I think you're you're finding a three for three alignment. I think there remains reasonable white space in what is a, a fantastically large TAM. And whether that's, again, we talked a little bit here about kind of oral medications and working on tolerability safety with relatively similar efficacy and combinations of, of mechanisms that are going to supplement uh, that weight loss or work on things like lean muscle sparing. I, I think we see really exciting opportunities in those areas. And would expect the sort of participation in that market to continue to broaden strategically. The issue on commercial stories, I guess I would say, is you know, today we're also seeing extensive appetite from pharma for larger product opportunities, just given the patent experience. And I think that trickles down into public investor sentiment as well. So for commercial stories that are probably very safe, but are not gigantic products, uh, I think they will be mispriced for a while. So again, if you're if you're patient, prize you and become much bigger products than you think is maybe the epidemiology or the, the market share surprises you over time. But even just uh, apart from that, I think they offer really you know fairly attractive valuations. So setting aside again, the difference between spec farm or not, I think that is, is, is an opportunity set that will emerge uh, over time to be uh, one where people can generate uh, attractive returns. So maybe shifting gears a little bit when we talk about pipeline, how should we distinguish VCs from crossover investing, from just public investing? And when you think about that spectrum of investing strategies, 
how should audiences think about, you know, where one begins and ends? And so they kind of know who is the right investor audience to target if they are, say, looking for capital or want to talk to an investor. I would say just more broadly, how do companies get through this period, right? Maybe is a maybe a more constructive way to think about this is, and I think here's where I do think, you know, quality really begins to matter in terms of your investor base. And it's self-serving, of course, but the reality is it's really true, which is if you optimize your negotiation on pre-money and you end up with the wrong set of investors, it actually really does screw you for the rest of your financing history because you end up overpriced for all your best investors who are going to be committed to you through ups and downs. And so you almost like selectively get investors who are not going to be there for the good days. And so, you know, for me, like the things I think about, like, what do I tell them? It's like, what do you have to do? Like survive one, get long-term investors and, and, and give on valuation to get that quality. Number two, you got to think less about the pre-money and more about your post-money. So you have to actually make sure that you don't spend like, you know, money is like burning on trees. So like you, you really have to make sure that you're getting to your value inflection point with a, a, you know, such enough money that you get to a post money where the next guy actually gets paid. So I think that's really what, what folks have to do. I think about my early stage brethren, there's only a couple of firms that I think have the, frankly, the, the capital and the dry powder that can actually sustain it. So you have to be super selective now in your early stage investors. I would guide companies when they have a pipeline that look, you may have to spend a little more and move everything along, right? Or move three things along. Because if you focus your spending to kind of get a single asset over the line, that may be the most kind of economical path. But if there's a hiccup, if there's a delay, if there's a bump in the road, right? Now you're gonna have a funding problem, right? Or heaven forbid, it doesn't work out. You could be a preclinical company all of a sudden if you don't kind of bring that pipeline along, right? So. I think the when we think about strategies, right, that that'll help just keep these companies running for the long run, it does require more spend. But well, I have heard from some that boards are saying focus on this one thing. Well, you know, look to your point, there's actually an interesting tension between I'd say companies and investors sometimes, right? Because for the individual company, you're absolutely right. They're buying insurance effectively by having a pipeline, but there's a cost to that insurance, which is the increased funding that they have to raise and then the post money that they have on the other end of it. But for an investor, we don't care necessarily about the individual company having risk reduction. Like we have a diversified portfolio. We want max efficiency out of that capital. So that's a little bit of the, the, the tension. And look, I think I would just say the cost of insurance in a market like this is very high. So the company just has to choose, like, is it worth it for me to have three assets in development versus the one? Because the reality is, I mean, let's be honest, in biotech, how often is the pipeline product given much value? I would agree with that. I think it, the cost of insurance is really high, the focus on the post, and ultimately, what are you getting with the um, investment you're making in terms of getting to data that's going to be meaningful that will allow for a step up uh, in, in valuation and a broadening of the types of investors that are going to be interested in it. I mean, I think having those hard conversations also really focusing on the strength and the quality of the team. It's a market where you know some people are moving around, and I think being relentless about building a team that can actually execute well against uh, a clear plan with, with the capital that is provided to them is really important. And uh, that goes to the active management part of this market is uh, all of those things factor into, I think, enabling a company to be successful. The other part we probably uh, think about there is just how expensive is it to, to drive towards data? And I'll, I'll maybe mention you know, ADCs as an example. Uh, early on, that's a tough when that when that modality wasn't super well validated. 
takes a lot to figure out a complicated molecule to make it, to optimize it, then put it into people, uh, dose escalate it, and figure out whether your you know, therapeutic window is what you hoped for and whether the toxicity is going to uh, you know, be able to be subdued relative to standard chemotherapies in a way that allows for a durable response. And that today is is all the rage. It was uh, very, you know, a lot of very late, successful late stage uh, programs with great data, a lot of business development activity around it right now, and we see tons of promise in it. That would be a harder thing in some ways with a less understood modality to do today because it might take you $40 million to get to clinical signals. So investing in that in a really broad sense can be complicated. So I think those are the, the, the inverse side of things is where our, this environment may cause our investor universe to sort of miss a few things. It's on things like that. Um, but we're we're trying to be conscientious about what's it really cost to get to to run critical experiments and get to data that that can really allow the company to transform in terms of valuation and breadth of interest. What kind of creative sort of deal structures do you think can be brought to bear? When you've identified a company you want to invest in, there's an obvious capital need. How do you bridge that gap sometimes? Yeah, I think what we saw, I would say, over the last several years is that companies were likely overfunded. They took in too much capital, I would say, at a very high valuation that didn't enable kind of a step up into the next round to replenish the, you know, the cap table with new investors that could really kind of take on the new risk and more or less kind of carry the company forward. And what you're seeing for the first time, I would say, maybe in the last kind of seven or so years, is the ability to tranche deals and to tranche them around milestones to where the investors and company management are completely aligned that if the data card flip actually does look positive and signals that the company has a future in the way it was intended when we first started the round, you put in more money at that point in time, as opposed to giving, I would say, the management team everything up front. Why is that the case? I, I would say it's responsibility is that we've seen at this point in time, there's something like 160 companies trading in the public sector that are trading at negative enterprise values, meaning that there's no equity value left in the company. These have been relegated to cash shells because the market says that those teams will destroy value in the end. Certainly that won't be the case. And there's going to be companies that emerge out of that basket that are multifold winners for the investors that have stuck with the story the entire time. But the lesson has been learned is that overcapitalizing a company is it's just big of a sin as ultimately coming in for a really high pre-money on that doesn't enable kind of a compounding of what that return and what the valuation looks like as the company consecutively moves forward through milestones. The second thing I would say that we're starting to see, and this is kind of interesting, is that, you know, in so much that investors are moving to the right end and becoming more risk averse as opposed to trying to fund a lot of pipelines for companies and perhaps having conversations with management teams as to more or less deprioritizing those pipelines and focusing on what's central is the data very much supports that. You look at 13 of the 14 M&A transactions that have happened this year, all of them were phase three or marketed products past a major pivotal data set or something that has been exemplified through de-risk, but it was focused on a single asset. No platform, not necessarily the idea that the success of this drug in a phase three clinical study could read through to you know, a plethora of other drugs in the pipeline. Companies were bought for the single assets that could ultimately produce revenue and move the needle for pharma. But what's going to happen, which is really interesting, is investors will always move towards the area of where there's asymmetric you know, reward versus risk. And in that case, right now, you know, as you've heard from Matt and Chen, uh, that risk reward calculus is very much into kind of, you know, good data sets, mid-stage companies, companies that are well capitalized already that aren't going to run into the problems of the next three years. So who can step up 
And who is the marginal buyer of these pipelines that can potentially even more so than investors have a longer term horizon? And quite frankly, this symbiotic relationship between pharma and biotech, you know, in our eyes over the next two to three years is, is going to get a lot closer. It's actually going to be a very happy marriage because from pharma's perspective to manage their risk as to what they need in 2030, they've got to be investing in early stage assets now in order to diversify. And that happens through collaborations and that happens through a wide variety of means to bring in substantial cash flow for these companies. There's one deal that I think might have been announced either last week or the week before where Gilead gave about $100 million up front to a company that was trading at half of that in terms of total market cap for a collaboration or a multi-year collaboration on a segment of the market and antivirals that Gilead was interested in. Certainly, are they expecting a monetary reward or an IRR or a return that they're going to ultimately distribute back to their LPs? No. They're doing this for the innovative edge in order to be able to diversify and mitigate risk across an area that they see as a high potential for the future and be able to outlicense and outsource a lot of that research and clinical development. So I do think pharma is going to fill in that gap to where you're looking at what can ultimately provide the marginal dollar in terms of outsourced innovation that might be early. But I do think that most investors are kind of starting to shift into the, uh, into the mid-stage. Is that, a, is that a message to investors when these strategic deals happen and you have you know, parties like a Gilead or a Pfizer or whomever invest in a company? To me, it's sort of suggesting that company clearly is undervalued, right? And somebody's putting money where their mouth is. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly one message that can walk away. And when we're starting to see pharma when they do these types of collaboration agreements or even just M&A at the premiums, they are putting in a floor on the sector and saying there's a lot more value. The only issue is that the calculus for pharma is very different from the calculus of a biotechnology going at it as a standalone entity. Because pharma, in order to acquire a single asset and more or less be able to supplement in terms of their entire commercial infrastructure, a new cancer drug or a new drug for orphan disease or a new drug in the ophthalmology division, the costs aren't really that excess, especially if there's not a lot of further clinical development to be had and that's had on you know the wallets of the investors over the last six to seven years. So Pharma is actually extracting a lot more value just because more or less the synergy or what they're going to attain from revenue versus the cost structure is going to be a lot of a higher ratio than what the biotech company will have to do in terms of building out this entire sales and commercial and marketing and medical affairs team. And to do that across, you know, 300 different biotechnology companies, well, in the end, you know, that's that's kind of inefficiency at it as its finest. So I think that biotech will remain as kind of this golden goose for outsourced innovation, for pharma to diversify their risk. And ultimately, if the biotech company can enhance and more or less take a drug to where it's no longer a science project, we've de-risked it sufficiently to the point to where it's an annuity in the eyes of pharma, that's ultimately, I think, where, where the vast majority of the acquisitions will happen, uh, kind of as we've seen with the trend both this year and last year, with most of them being phase three and beyond. Thank you for listening to another episode of Pathfinders and Biopharma, brought to you by RBC Capital Markets. This episode was originally recorded on October 25th, 2023, and is taken from a live webinar hosted in partnership with Endpoints News. If you'd like to listen to the full broadcast replay, please contact us directly or listen to it on our website at rbccm.com forward slash biopharma. If you're enjoying Pathfinders and Biopharma, don't miss an episode. 
Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you all next time. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.